When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year, on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. If you like this podcast and you want it without advertisements, head over to patreon.com and become a member of The Brian McClanahan Show. For 10 bucks a month, you get all the podcasts ad-free, including video, and you also get a special Q&A podcast. I'm only going to answer your questions, your listener-generated episodes, through those Q&As. So head over to patreon.com. Get this podcast ad-free, no ads, not even things like this, and you really do help support The Brian McClanahan Show with really cool stuff on the back end. If you like this podcast, don't forget to follow me on social media. Find me on Twitter, now X, at Brian McClanahan. Also on Facebook, at Brian McClanahan. And on YouTube, where you can watch the podcast, at Brian McClanahan. It's a great time. I'd love to see you there. Is the party of Lincoln really the party of Calhoun? Well, according to one midwit, yes. We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back with the program. Very glad to be here. All right. We've got a midwit at the nation, Jeet Her saying that the party of Lincoln is really the party of Calhoun. Now, this is a fascinating argument in many ways, because it's so incredibly stupid that uh, it deserves a response. Now, here's the thing. I've said on this podcast many times that the party of Lincoln today, in 2024, is the same party of Lincoln in 1856, 1860, 1858. Really, nothing has changed in that Republican Party. It is still a 19th century left-wing party. And in fact, they openly say it if you'll listen to them. The West Coast Straussians are living in a 19th century world as 19th century leftists. They're 19th century revolutionaries in many ways. They're not really conservative. They're trying to conserve the middle of the 19th century and the revolution that took place there. The problem is they think that that should stop when they say it stops. This is the proposition nation myth. See, the problem with it, if you get to a point where you say it should stop, the left is just going to say, no, we shouldn't. We believe in the notion of equity and equality and inclusion and all these things that we get. DEI directly comes out of the rhetoric of the middle of the 19th century, and Lincoln was responsible for that in the Gettysburg Address, the proposition nation myth. Now, he wasn't the first to do that. I mean, Republicans were saying these things before Lincoln did. And, of course, there were others that were saying it before the Republicans. And, in fact, there were people saying these things right after Jefferson wrote it, wrote the Declaration, even though Jefferson didn't believe it and 
Nobody else really did either. That's the whole point of saying, well, there's no ideology to America. These people were living in real tangible things. Ideology didn't matter. Or if you want to look at the way they use the term, it was in stark contrast to the way that, say, someone in 2024 would interpret the term all men are created equal, or even the way Lincoln used it in 1863. So all that said, we've got Jeet Her saying that, well, we actually have the Republican Party as the party of Calhoun. This is such a stupid position. The Republicans really don't believe in anything that Calhoun would say. They have adopted the Lincolnian nationalist myth. They're majoritarians, numerical majoritarians. They don't believe in anything Calhoun said. And they're really not that committed to the principles of, at least on the, on the national level, they're really not committed at all to uh, the principles of federalism. They're all just nationalists in their own way. You can find outliers, of course. And I think at the local and state level, you'll find more people committed to the principles of federalism than anything else. But what this piece is trying to do is say that all these people are committed to Calhoun because, well, they're all just holding the same racial views as Calhoun. You see, that's the whistle. That's the left says the dog whistle. This is the dog whistle for the left. You see, these people are all just Calhoun defending the positive good. Well... I haven't run across anybody who defends the positive good in at least the idea that slavery should still be around us. That speech is something entirely different. And if you read it carefully, there's so much in it that you have to really understand what Calhoun was saying. So that's a whole other topic. And in class, I've, in fact, I've got a whole class on that at McClanahan Academy, reading John C. Calhoun. It's a great class. You should get it. But let's talk about this piece because it's so bad. It really does need a refutation. There are some really interesting parts that you might miss that show that Jeet Her at the nation is really the midwit of midwits. So here we go. Although former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is running to be president of the United States, she often seems to be auditioning for leadership of an entirely different polity. The long-defunct Confederate States of America. Yeah. That's what she's really running for. The long-defunct Confederate States of America. You see, this is, this is the nation, so it's, the rhetoric is stupid. But regardless. That phrase doesn't even mean anything. It's illogical. On Wednesday, Haley was interviewed for the radio show The Breakfast Club about the current standoff between Texas Governor Greg Abbott and the Biden administration over immigration policy. Abbott has repeatedly indicated that he believes Texas has the right to reject federal law, even when compliance has been mandated by the Supreme Court. <gasps> oh my God. Oh no. Even when it's been mandated by the Supreme Court. Let me say this. This is where Jeet Her really doesn't understand 19th century America. You know who else did that in the middle of the 19th century? Oh, the Republican Party. You know who didn't? The Democrat Party. You see, the Supreme Court actually sided with the Democrats and Dred Scott, and the Republican Party explicitly rejected that. You see, the this is very consistent in some ways with the Republican Party. It's not Calhounian at all. I mean, it's really American. It's core. In fact, you go back to the Stamp Act crisis, and nullification was a was a core position 
and the Stamp Act crisis. People were nullifying the Stamp Act all over the colonies, saying we're just not going to enforce that. We're not going to collect the tax. We're not going to do anything. That's nullification. Even though the court said they should. Does Jeet Her think that all court decisions should be upheld? I mean, if so, well then, the Republican Party was completely in the wrong in the 1850s because they were not up upholding the Dred Scott decision. Would you say the Dred Scott decision should be upheld? I mean, this is the same question you could ask to Bill O'Reilly. These people are all just statists. They're all nationalists. They all believed in the infallibility of the Supreme Court. Everybody should follow the Supreme Court and do this. Does uh, Jeet Her believe that the decisions of, say, Heller or Bruin, which the left seems to hate, those should be enforced? I mean, the state shouldn't be able to ignore that. I mean, does he think that? If he would say, yeah, we should enforce this, we should have enforced Red Scott, well, at least he would be consistent. But he wouldn't say that. And I know he wouldn't say that. Because you say those decisions are wrong. But these decisions are right. You see, it's, it's intellectually inconsistent, and it's frankly just stupid. The Biden administration and the Supreme Court have both affirmed that federal border agents... Federal Border Patrol officials trying to protect migrants at the Eagle Pass border crossing cannot be stopped by the Texas National Guard. False. It's a false position. Of course Texas can stop people. They can do whatever they want. These people are on Texas territory. They're an illegal alien in Texas. And Texas can do what it wants there. You want to know who said that? Not just me. The founding generation said that. States can do what they want with these issues. The federal government actually has no control over that. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. It doesn't really matter what the Biden administration says. If it's doing unconstitutional things, then they're not enforceable. Abbott's position has won wide assent within the Republican Party, with 25 of 26 current Republican governors penning a letter supporting his position. Great. My nation colleague, Ellie Mistel, whoever that is, labeled Abbott's revival of law-breaking states' rights an act of civil war reenactment. Again, this is, these people are just LARPers, they're just cosplayers. This is what you see on social media accounts when people actually present an, uh, a reason argument against these things. Well, you're just a LARPer, you're just a cosplayer. It's a way to, uh, to try to um, smack these people down that's anti-intellectual. You don't have to deal with their arguments. You just make an accusation of cosplay or LARPing, and it really doesn't matter. You don't actually deal with their arguments. Vindicating Mistel's analysis, Haley not only defended Abbott, but affirmed the right of Texas to leave the Union. Well, that was true. You see, if Haley had actually doubled down on these things and said, you know, well, I mean, this is right, if she hadn't run from this, going on Saturday Night Live and everything else, people might actually respect Nikki Haley a little better. But because she does uh, run from everything she says, I mean, this is where Ron DeSantis put up the video of her saying one thing and then saying another, like, you know, the next day. It's what Nikki Haley does. She can't stand on anything. Haley told the radio show, if that whole state says we don't want to be part of America anymore, I mean, that's their decision to make. The former governor did try to cover herself by adding, let's talk about what's reality. Texas isn't going to secede. This is not the first time Haley has affirmed secessionism. In 2020, as a gubernatorial candidate, Haley was asked if states could leave the union. She responded, I think that they do. I mean, the Constitution says that. Well, again, 
the Constitution doesn't say states can leave the Union. What it doesn't do is say states can't leave the Union, which would be a reserved power of the states, vis-a-vis the Tenth Amendment and the way the Constitution was understood when it was ratified in 1788. We know that because there were members of the founding generation that advocated secession. If they didn't think it was possible, if they didn't think it was legal, then none of them would have done it. But it wasn't just Southerners who said these things. It was actually Northerners who were saying this stuff at that time period. As early as 1794, five years after the Constitution was ratified, and the Congress, or six years after it was ratified, five years after the Congress was in place, you had two Northerners, Rufus King and Oliver Ellsworth, both very instrumental in the ratification of the Constitution and drafting of it. Corner John Taylor of Carolina in the cloakroom in the Senate and say, you know what, John... Let's just get out of this union. You, you people are blocking everything we're trying to do. We can't do anything. We can't, we can't get our policies through. Maybe we should just part ways now. Governor Morris. Governor Morris, however you want to say it. I like Governor better. Governor Morris and the Philadelphia Convention said, you know what? If we are really that incompatible, let's part ways right now. Let's not even go through the charade of creating... Uh, this constitution and trying to keep this union together. Let's not even do that. Let's just leave. I mean, if he was against secession, he wouldn't have said that. He would have said secession is illegal. We were operating under a document that called it a perpetual union at that point, right? So he's saying, let's just leave now. If secession was illegal, that wouldn't be the case. George Washington supported the constitution because he thought secession was a real possibility. Same thing with Edmund Randolph. If secession wasn't possible, nobody would have talked about it and been afraid of it. If they didn't think it was legal, they wouldn't have said these things. Now, Jeet Hurst says, well, Haley's position is odd. Since the issue of the indissolubility of the Union was surely settled in 1865 by the Civil War, it was. It was surely settled. How? Because one half of the United States killed more people than the other half? That doesn't settle an issue. That just says, I'm going to force you into a union. That's like a a husband beating his wife into submission to stay in the marriage. That's all that is. That doesn't settle the issue. It doesn't settle the legal issue at all. But, Jeet Hurst says, nor was this merely a battlefield victory. In Texas v. White, the Supreme Court put to bed all fantasies of constitutional secessionism by declaring the union, I'm sorry, declaring the United States an indestructible union. No, it didn't do that, Jeet Hurst. In any way, you have to understand why the decision was made. This is the Supreme Court Chief Justice trying to validate the actions of the Republican Party during the war. If he had come out and said, you know, if secession was actually legal, that invalidates the entire premise of the war that we had uh, an independent South and that the North really needed a declaration of war to go to war against the South. That would have invalidated Lincoln's contention. This was a rebellion, an insurrection. It wasn't in any way. There was no rebellion against the government. It was an act of self-determination. But you see, they had to come up with something. Something, right? All fantasies of this. Now, the other thing uh, that it didn't solve is that, well, the decision actually said states can leave the Union if the Congress boots them out. Now, why would they say that? Well, because this provides cover for the first Reconstruction Act of 1867, where the Congress kicks states out of the Union. 
and said, you can't be in the union. You see, Lincoln and Johnson had said, they're in the union. Congress said, no, they're not. We're kicking them out. We're gonna, these are going to be military districts. They're subject to martial law. Civil courts are open, but you're still going to have martial law. And in fact, the Supreme Court smacked that down. And you know what happened? They just removed the court's jurisdiction over that. So you see, the Republican Party isn't very consistent ever. Well, they didn't dis they didn't disbelieve in secession. They didn't disbelieve in state sovereignty. They just thought they had the power to do whatever they wanted. They had plenary power over the rest, and that's ahistorical in the American constitutional tradition. Now, this next part is really funny. Given their party affiliations, this history should not be obscure to Haley Abbott or the, nor the 25 GOP governors supporting Texas's current defiance of the law. And in fact, that's not what Texas is doing. Texas isn't defying the law. Joe Biden's defying the law. Texas is just saying, we're going to enforce the immigration laws. We're going to make sure these people are not allowed in the United States. In fact, they're here illegally. Would that not be the very definition of enforcing the law by saying you're here illegally that's defying the law by saying we're going to enforce the law that's doing what they're supposed to do the Biden administration by catch and release and other things is not supporting the law so who's really defying the law the Biden administration which of course he takes an oath to uphold and defend the constitution of the United States in other words to execute the laws of the union which would be to enforce the laws or Texas, which is going out and enforcing the law. Now, this is really funny. This is a, a funny midwit segment, this next sentence. After all, the Republican Party was formed in 1854 by anti-slavery activists who flatly rejected the states' rights arguments of enslavers. Let me see if they did that. 1860 Republican Party platform, section 4 that the maintenance and violate of the right of the states and especially the right of each state to order and control its own domestic institutions according to its own judgment exclusively is essential to that balance of powers on which the perfection and endurance of our political fabric depends. And we denounce the lawless invasion by armed force of the soil of any state or territory, no matter under what pretense, amongst the gravest of crimes. That's from the 1860 Republican Party platform. Is that a flat rejection of state authority? In fact, it would support it. They're saying, well, you can have slaves in your states if you want, and we're not going to send in the army to do anything about it. In fact, this is the Lincoln administration, after he's elected and in power, saying, I support the Corwin Amendment, which would have... Per preserve slavery forever in the South. If any was Lincoln was all over it. Daniel Crofts has said it was actually the Lincoln Amendment, not the Corn Amendment. Lincoln's fingerprints were all over the thing. It was a strict adherence to the Republican Party platform of 1860. And, as I've said on this show, platforms mattered in 1860. More than anything else, people ran on platforms. You didn't have candidates out there stumping everywhere, so people read the platforms. This is what they believed, and this is what people voted for. So people that voted for Republicans in 1860 were voting for that section of the platform. This is where the midwits live in midwittery. They think they know something, and they're going to give it to the other side, and we're going to say these truths about the Republican Party, and yet they don't really know anything. 
So is that Calhounian or is that just simply the American system of federalism? But the current GOP is far from being the party of Abraham Lincoln. In its present intellectual orientation, the party more clearly owes a debt to Lincoln's polar opposite, John C. Calhoun, the leading antebellum theorist of states' rights. Well, I ask the question, if that's true, then why would the Republican Party put Section 4 into their platform? If they promised never to interfere with any institution in the states where it already existed, how is that not states' rights? What they didn't believe is that the federal territory should be open to slavery, but that was a whole other issue. That actually wasn't even a states' rights issue. And, it, by the way, the Republican Party, which controlled many northern states, was invoking states' rights to say that we didn't have to enforce the fugitive slave law, which was the, a more egregious use of nullification than any southern state had ever done because, you know what, the fugitive slave law is actually in the Constitution. So the issue of tariffs and other things, this was questionable. I mean, I can, I can even see the arguments that, well, you can't really nullify a tariff. There's tariffs in there. But the idea that maybe a protective tariff isn't there. The, the fugitive slave law is in the Constitution, so they're nullifying something that's in the Constitution itself. It's not an implied power or an expansion of a power. It's in the Constitution. So they firmly believed in states' rights. They were the ones that said we can have personal liberty laws. We don't have to force federal law that we don't want to. If they want to send marshals into the states and round up fugitive slaves, have at it. But we're not going to use any state resources to do it. And the Supreme Court upheld that, in fact, interestingly enough. But no, no, no. These people are against. The Republican Party was against states' rights. They were just completely alien to it. No, they weren't. They were nationalists in that they were really sectionalists, but they believed in, a, in expansive federal power in certain areas that the South would have said that's an unconstitutional use of that federal power, but not over the states. Not over the states at all, not until you get to the war. Calhoun had lived from 1782 to 1850 and served as vice president under John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. He wasn't under them. He just served as vice president. That's a whole... That's a whole mischaracterization of the office of the vice president. You don't serve under the president. You're the president of the Senate. You're the vice president of the United States. You're a separate office. You're not under anybody. You would assume the duties of the president should the president die or incapacitated, but you don't serve under them. You are an entirely unique and independent office. You have control that the president does not have because you actually sit in one of the legislative bodies. So in some ways, you have as much power as the president in case of a tie. The president can't do any of that. Was the most intellectually supple advocate of the slave owner's cause. Intellectually supple. Worried that slave owners would one day be overpowered by popular opposition, he developed a novel constitutional theory of minority rights that gave primacy to states over the federal government. This extended the right to the right of the states to reject or nullify laws they regarded as unconstitutional. Now, of course, Calhoun didn't come up with this, as I've already said. This goes all the way back to the 1760s. The idea that states can nullify, or at least communities can nullify unconstitutional acts. They did it all the time. They did it in the North, they did it in the South, they did it, they did it everywhere. This wasn't novel. It was what people thought they could do. 
Calhoun was simply just building off of things that had already didn't been done before. Writing in Huff Post, Paul Blumenthal notes that Abbott's declaration that the Biden administration had broken the compact between the United States and the states by failing to fulfill the duties of protecting Texas from an invasion is an eerie echo of the political thought that gave rise to nullification and secession in the 19th century and resistance to desegregation in the 20th. There it is, see? This is just eerie. This is an eerie, it's eerie echo. Can't you hear the echo, the eerie echo of the past coming to us now from these long, defunct, evil people? You see, secession and nullification are evil. Of course, Paul Blumenthal, I don't even know who that is, is a dope because he doesn't even understand that nullification was around long before Calhoun said this. So was secession, by the way. In fact, you could say that the entire act of the Constitution was an act of secession. You can make that argument. I don't necessarily agree with that 100%, but you can make that argument. You can make it. We had the Articles of Confederation, Perpetual Union, and we get the Constitution. The states essentially seceded from one document to form another document. What happens if four states didn't ratify the Constitution? They're not even in the Union. The articles required unanimous consent of all the states to do it. Blumenthal rightly names Calhoun as the fountainhead of this tradition. No, that would actually be Jefferson and Madison if you just want to look at, you know, when the under the Constitution, that would be those people, not Calhoun. Not Calhoun at all. Now, of course, there's... Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Madison rejected Calhoun's position. The Kentucky resolutions were stronger than the Virginia resolutions. Much stronger. But here's the thing. What Madison was looking at is the right to interpose to nullify it for all. To say that, well, one state can invalidate a law for every state by simply saying we're not going to enforce it. That's not what Calhoun and, and I'm sorry, not what Madison and Jefferson said. And we can look at that concurrent majority position and debate it. I mean, look, uh, uh, Jeet Her is so interested in minority rights. That would seem to be a boon for minorities. If minorities could just say, you know what? We don't like this law of Congress. We nullify it. In a state, we say it's invalid and everyone has to come to the table then and think about this thing. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing for minority rights? Any minority. It could be any minority. I thought Jeet Hur was interested in minority rights. I don't know. He's really not. He's interested in majoritarianism. And he thinks he has the power. Because his guy's in office. And he thinks they control the Congress. By one vote. That's all that matters. This is what Calhoun was concerned about. It's abuse of power. And if the Biden administration is abusing Texas by letting people in that Texas doesn't want there, that's abuse of power. By refusing to enforce the laws, that's a dereliction of duty. That is an impeachable offense. Knowing that the statesman embraced a virulent stand of, strand of states' rights legal thinking in defense of slavery when he put forward the theory of nullification in 1828. Since the nation was simply a compact created between the states, this thinking went, states had the ultimate authority to reject any federal law they deemed unconstitutional. In 1832, Calhoun's South Carolina declared that it would not follow two national tariff laws and if forced to do so, would secede. Well, you know who else said that? Well, I mean, Jefferson and Madison in 1798. Anyways, 
This is why this stuff is just so ridiculously silly. It's silly. The story of how the GOP went from being the party of Lincoln to the party of Calhoun dates back to the political realignment that occurred after the Second World War. At that point, the Republicans had a stronger tradition of supporting civil rights, a low bar to clear given the power of Southern white racists in the Democratic coalition. But as African-American voters in the North migrated for economic reasons to the New Deal coalition, Democrats started to shift on civil rights, a change seen in Franklin Roosevelt's creation of the Fair Employment Practices Committee in 1941 and Harry Truman's 1948 executive order desegregating the military. You see, the way it happened is just because of, you guessed it, racism. That's all it is. This is all about racism. You see all, the, all these Republicans, this is, this is their dog whistle. You see, all this is is just racism. It's just racism. And I'm going to prove it because, well, Harry Truman and Franklin Roosevelt shifted. Because one desegregated the military, the other had the Fair Employment Practices Committee. Which, by the way, I mean, if you just want to be honest about this, Republicans supported these things more than anyone else. In Congress, I mean, they did even in the 1960s. They did. I mean, some Republicans voted against it, but not many. So, is the GOP really, has it really even changed? What's happened in America is that the other strand of American polity, the American politics, has been virtually ignored and, and shoved aside. There isn't really a conservative party in America anymore, and of course that's not just has to do with anything with race. But there really isn't a conservative American party. It doesn't exist. We have two liberal parties. The GOP, and the Democrats. The shift by the Democrats created an opening for the rising conservative movement to encourage the Republicans to appeal to disaffected Southern whites. This nascent Southern strategy was championed by the conservative intellectuals at William F. Buckley's National Review, created in 1955, in opposition to the more moderate conservatism of Dwight Eisenhower. For National Review, right-wingers, one of Eisenhower's major sins was sending federal troops to the Little Rock to enforce civil rights law. This, this was a huge issue in the 1950s, without a question. Could Eisenhower send in federal troops? I mean, he could do it under the guise of enforcing the 15th Amendment. Uh, and that would be a use of federal power. But was it the only issue of the 1950s? And No, of course not. Where you saw a drift in other directions. Eisenhower was a believer in dynamic conservatism, which was simply just soft New Dealism. And you had a lot of people, conservatives, who were opposed to the New Deal, both Republicans and Democrats. So where are they going to go? As the Democrat Party does move left, they had to find somewhere. But it doesn't mean the Republican Party ever changed. And it's clear in how they phrase things. And it's clear who, who organizes and runs the Republican Party today. It's still the party of Lincoln. 100%. In a 2013 New Republic article, the journalist Sam Tenenhaus, who was working on a biography of William F. Buckley, noted that a revival of Calhoun's ideas fueled many National Review writers, notably Russell Kirk and James J. Kilpatrick. Buttressed by Calhoun, National Review argued for nullification as a rationale for defying civil rights law. As Tenenhaus point, pointed out, his most notorious editorial, Why the South Must Prevail, Buckley drew on Calhoun's championing of the concurrent voice to defend voting restrictions, since, quote, the South is entitled to take such measures as are necessary to prevail politically and culturally in areas which it does not predominate numerically, even if it meant violating the 14th and 15th Amendments. Now, the question is, 
Did it violate the 14th and 15th Amendments? Any of these things. I mean, we can look at this legally. Was the South, if you if you go down to what was happening, would it, it really violate either one of these? We can say that it did or it didn't. You can make arguments both ways. This is a matter of opinion. Buckley repeated the argument in his book, Up from Liberalism, suggesting that African Americans needed to be properly educated and trained before they were brought up to the level of the enfranchised whites who were holding them down. This is, an, this is a position that, uh, you know who made that argument? Republicans in the 1850s and 1860s, they made the same arguments. This wasn't something that was alien to the Republican Party. In fact, it was the American position for most of American history. Only until you get to the 20th century, as one party moved further and further left, the other one stayed in a relatively similar position as it had in the 1850s. It wasn't Calhoun, it was Lincoln. Under Eisenhower, Calhounite arguments were marginal, but as the Southern strategy altered the GOP, the Calhoun tradition found a new lease on life in the Republican Party. Tenehouse focused on the traditional swing of conservatism. In her 2017 study, Democracy in Chains, the historian Nancy McLean extended the arguments by documenting the influence of Calhoun on libertarian thinkers, notably the influential public choice economist James Buchanan. This is interesting because uh, there's been a whole debate about how influential... Calhoun really was on Buchanan. Buchanan has said that he didn't really read Calhoun. So, I mean, that's been an entire discussion that I don't even want to get into. Buchanan has rejected that he even read Calhoun, but he's coming up with similar arguments in his mind based on what he's read about many other things. It's not Calhoun. It would be the American principle of federalism that would come into this. Tannehouse and McLean were both virulently attacked for drawing attention to the Calhounite legacy on the right, an understandable response in an era when even Calhoun's own alma mater was sufficiently ashamed of the association to strip his name from their buildings. This is the stupidity of modern conservatism, and it shows you that these people really aren't interested in Calhoun. The West Coast Straussians make it their primary goal to denounce Calhoun. That becomes everything to them. Jonah Goldberg in National Review described Hannah House's article as Sam Smear, a risable allegation from someone who wrote him a, uh, a book arguing that American liberalism is fascist. Rattling in the baffler, historian Andrew Hartman noted in response to McLean's blunt criticism, several libertarian attack dogs have churned out dozens of essays and critiques, many prominently featured in the Washington Post online policy vertical The Volca Conspiracy, howling at McLean, is not only wrong, but perhaps even guilty of intellectual fraud, ideological bad faith, and other trespasses against proper academic inquiry. It is Hartman also notes support for McLean's arguments can be found in research of libertarians themselves. Hartman amusingly called attention to a 1992 academic article by libertarian economists Alexander Trabuck and Tyler Cowan entitled The Public Choice Theory of John C. Calhoun that emphasizes the affinities McLean's critics tend to deny. Look, I'm not going to deny I think Calhoun is important. I'm not a libertarian, but I mean, I'm not going to deny that Calhoun uh, in his positions on concurrent majority would actually have something to say about modern American polity. And his positions on federalism would be a refreshing departure from the nationalism that we get all over the place today. I mean, this is true. Tenehouse and McLean have nothing to apologize for. They were writing history. <laughs> This is funny. 
They were writing history. No, they're not writing history. They're writing polemics. They're not seeking to understand at all. They're writing polemics with a political agenda. They're activists. It's not history. And their research has been vindicated by history itself. Really? History can vindicate something? That's, again, a weak argument. There's no vindication through history. History seeks to understand. Given the arguments Abbott and Haley now make with near total agreement from party leaders, can anyone still deny that Calhoun has actually been a formative influence on the American right? Well, uh, I've said Calhoun is an important part of the American right. Well, I mean, people have said this for years. It's only recently that anyone's tried to say, no, 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 Calhoun wasn't part of the American right. And look, he's never been a part of the Republican Party, other than their acceptance of federalism and nullification. But that wasn't even just... Calhoun. This is bigger than Calhoun. I think Calhoun is important in his critique of majoritarianism. It's something that's very important because with majoritarianism, you get all kinds of problems. Tenet House's bracing of words from 2013 even ring more true now than a decade ago. Quote, we are left with a profound historical irony that the party of Lincoln of the Gettysburg Address with its reiteration of the Declaration's assertion of equality and its vision of a new birth of freedom has found sustenance in Lincoln's principal intellectual and moral antagonist has become the party of Calhoun. False. They're still the party of the proposition nation. They still fundamentally believe in it. You can read anything that they do and find it. What they think is that it's the revolution stopped in the 1960s and needs to go no further. Whereas the other side says the revolution must continue. There's no irony here. The Republican Party is the same party. In 1948, the historian Richard Hofstetter famously described Calhoun as the marks of the master class. This is often thrown out there. I don't think Jeet Hur even understands what that means. And Hofstetter was wrong about that. But he doesn't even understand that, that phrase. It's just, oh, he's described as the marks of the master class. Jeet Hur is completely oblivious to what this actually means. This perhaps explains Calhoun's enduring power. Just as Marx's call for class war continues to resonate in a world of economic inequality, Calhoun's defense of privilege has an eternal appeal for those who want to maintain racial hierarchy in defense of popular resistance. Because that's all these people really want to do. Marx, of course, was a fierce partisan of Lincoln. The question is, as the GOP revives Calhoun, will the Democrats ever find a way to return to the truckling clarity of the great emancipator? they're living in it. I mean, we don't have really an opposition to the proposition nation in anything. By And this is a complete distortion of what's happening anywhere, when, particularly in Texas, when they're trying to enforce the laws, which is what Lincoln said he was going to do in starting the war. Now, Texas is just saying, we're going to enforce the laws. If you won't do it, we'll do it. And the Biden administration said, oh, we're not, we can't enforce those laws. We can't, we can't enforce. We're not going to do that. So, anyways, Jeet Her has written uh, this ridiculous piece, and it needed a rebuttal. The funniest parts are when he gets into Lincoln. The Republican Party does... Look, he doesn't even understand American history. He has zero conception of what was going on. He's regurgitating a bunch of people that nobody even cares about. I mean, McLean's book was important in terms of how it was received, but uh, the rest of it? Give me a break. All right, 
See you next time with the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.